Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the beating where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Hey, Don. Hey, y'all, I'm Sam. What's shaking, Don? What's been going on with you? Well, let's see. Plague, economic depression, violence in the streets. I'm trying to decide if I'm okay. <laughs> you know? You know the expression serenity in calamity? Our ability to match calamity with serenity? Serenity, yeah. With yeah. Them, so I'm trying to match, because this is calamity. I'm talking about biblical scale calamity. Oh man. Okay, so I got to totally throw this out. I, I you know I'm an atheist. I watched an episcopal sermon this morning on YouTube. Huh? From a a former guest, Nathan. Mm-hmm. And Nathan mentioned apocalypse. Is this the apocalypse? Yes, it is. And then he went back to the Greek root of that word, meaning uncovering. And it was like a really interesting thing. And it, what it was talking about was all of these things that are being uncovered right now. And much to what you were just saying. Oh, I like that. But here's the thing. There's not a lot I can do. There are a few things I can do. But that's, it's like the, the, the things that I felt at the beginning of the quarantine that we've recently gone through and we're still, I'm, I'm still in, I'm of an age group, I'm still quarantined. Mm-hmm. To be okay with that uh, over a long period of time, so, okay, I've d- adapted to that somewhat, but then you add in the economic depression and you add in the police violence, m- murders, and then you add in rioting in the streets. And it almost is like I feel guilty if I feel okay. Because in the present moment, right this moment, I am okay. And this is what I've learned in recovery is like, I am okay. This is where I am. This is where I exist. So I need to let go of everything I can't change and look at what I can and look at the present situation and I'm okay, but I feel guilty being okay because I am privileged to be okay. I have an internet connection, I can talk to you. I have food, I have saving. No, I'm not sick. There, we maybe have some listeners who's lost someone due to the COVID mm-hmm. virus. The numbers are growing in our area every day, but as it is right now, I've not lost anyone. So it's like it's still out there. It's not actually affecting me personally. And I'm, you know, I'll be okay. But you know what is similar to me is like when my brother died and I was okay afterwards, but then I would feel guilty. Oh, I can't, I, I can't be okay because it would be like disrespectful to his memory, you know? And, I do know. It's hard. You know, it, so I had a, uh, an awareness hit me on that back in uh, 2009 uh, when I was uh, in San Francisco staying in the Castro uh, neighborhood because my first partner was uh, dying in hospice. And I was staying uh, in the hospice family home that was a couple of blocks away from hospice in the Castro. And I, I, I wound up living in the Castro for about a month. And I, was, I, I developed a routine. I, you know, I, I knew some people by, by face and waved and type, that type of thing. And I, I was walking to, to hospice one morning and realized that I was happy in that moment wait a minute, but I'm here because Kevin is dying. And that's when I realized it's all moments. It's all moments. And it's okay for me to be happy in this moment. And it's okay if I'm sad the next moment. It's all moments. I don't have to blend them all together. They can be discrete experiences. It's the nature of life. And 
So where I focus my attention matters. And oh, yeah. I can focus on all the bad stuff and hold all that close. Hold it right here and just make myself miserable. Or I can look at, you know, this is not imaginary. This is, you know, I have had times in my life where I lived with imagined bad things happening all over the place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's kind of creating it in my mind. But this is not imaginary. You know, this is like justifiable anger. But it's still poison to us. So it's poison for me to stay in a state of fear, agitation, anxiety. But the, the truth of the matter of life is that it's both good things and bad things happening at the same time. And yeah. it's always, it's, it can be there's times where incredibly wonderful things are happening while terrible things are happening. And I need to accept both of them and appreciate both of them as I can. So like you're saying, you need to be there for your friend who's dying. That's sad. And it's a bad thing. But the fact that you're available is a good thing. And the fact that there's a beautiful day and you're walking is a good thing. So, whew, it's <laughs> we have we have delved deeply in this one already. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. But you know, I mean, to to wrap up this thought, Don, I, I would say that you know, yes, I have to pay attention to what's going on around me, and there are things that are going on around me that, to use a term, unacceptable is what they are. Except that I have to accept that they are meaning that I have to acknowledge that they are where they are. But yes. thankfully, we've got that bit about the, uh, the, the serenity prayer, courage to change the things I can. And there are things that I can do. Courage uh, it requires me to step up and do these things uh, because there are things that can change because of my involvement. But what I have to do is also pull back from time to time and not stay immersed in that which is allows me to have the moments of the good as well. Um, one of the best analogies I ever heard is that action in all of these things that's going on right now is it's like a choir and a choir can hold a sustained note infinitely because the choir members drop out individually, take a breath and then rejoin. But the note continues. I like that. A friend had a, a AA anniversary and I saw you, uh, you had posted something like this, but got a chip. You actually, you deserve two chips for living through <laughs> this year. Yeah. If, if, if you stay sober, sober through 2020, you deserve two chips. <laughs> yeah. If you can stay sober through this, you can stay sober, pal. Well, we, listen, we've got somebody who's sober on here, who's just sitting there champing at the Bit to jump in on our conversation. <laughs> Hi, who are you? Hi, I'm Brad, and I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad Brad, you did. Thanks. I yeah. feel like I'm on a Super Soul Sunday or something. That got deep and that got real. Yeah, I did. <laughs> we don't ever know where this is going to go. <laughs> I'm glad to be in your choir. I might be a little pitchy, but. <laughs> <laughs> How long can you hold a note? Not too long. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. What, what do you say about th that, Brad? For I mean, our conversation. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of what I heard. I feel like we're going through some sort of seismic shifts, and I go back and forth from embracing the like it's okay to not be okay. Period hard stop like I feel okay not being okay right now to I'm okay and I'm accepting things and I'm accepting what I can't change and it's fascinating that you said that about the serenity prayer because um, you know I've been looking at and talking about and exploring um, everything that's going around with race and racism in this country and what I can do and what I can say and there was this activist named Angela Davis. She's wonderful. She's very smart. Been around for a long time. And she has this great quote that she says, I'm done accepting the things I can't change. It's time for me to change the things I can't accept. 
Yeah. And I was taken aback. And I have to admit, my first, my first response was angry. I was like, how dare she take that St. Francis prayer about acceptance that 12-step programmers have been using and twist it and manipulate it. But then I read it again and I'm like, no, I really like that. Like I kind of leaned into it. It's time to change the things I can't accept. I thought that was really fascinating. So I like that you mentioned that. Well, see, that's the problem. That's where the wisdom comes in. Because <laughs> is there something more that needs to be done or am I accepting because accepting the things I cannot change does not mean not caring. And it may be that there's something more to be done. So yeah, we got to check our motives or else I'm just a lazy guy sitting around accepting everything. Right. Well, and I think what you said too, the acceptance kind of ties back to the powerlessness. Like I can't think I'm some all powerful person that's going to solve things, fix things, help my friends not feel whatever they're feeling that powerlessness is part of that acceptance, which is so crucial and critical to me as an alcoholic and addict, right? Because if I don't understand that powerless, I can't even go from there. So I love that. So how are you staying sober today in this, this past month? Well, today right now is on Boiled Owl. You guys are a hoot and I'm gonna make as much as Oh, you made the owl chuckle. <laughs> I will be so excited if you like this. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I I really honestly I've had to like go back to basics. I've had to explore different meetings. I've questioned my <laughs> my sanity, my serenity, my am I okay? Is it okay to not be okay? And I've started to really step up my 12-step work in being of service to others which has been very nice. In what way? So I've really made concerted efforts to reach out to other alcoholics and addicts, some of whom have been struggling and really make a concerted effort to say, hey, I'm here for you. I wanna talk, I wanna listen. An example, like yesterday I was on this, it was a CMA meeting, a Crystal Method, I, AA is my foundational program. I also attend CMA and other 12-step programs. And I had had a really challenging work week, speaking up about what we should or shouldn't be saying or doing. You know, it, everything has weighed really heavy on me. I have a, a godson that's mixed race, and I've been thinking about his future and his life, and I felt like everything was so heavy. And I was on this CMA meeting yesterday, and this guy shared about, uh, he was in Chicago, and he had just lost his job from a very large institution, and it was racial bias was the reason why he lost his job. And I'm like, here I am sitting here thinking, oh, I had some really tough meetings at work. Like I had to speak up and say some things. And then there were other people on that call that, and he had like, he had like six months clean and sober and he was going through the most insane amounts of pain. So anyway, I direct messaged him in the Zoom meeting and I said, let's chat. And we ended up talking after the meeting, which was cathartic and healing for me to be able to be there for him and hear his experience and his challenges that he's going through. So just in little ways, I'm trying to just be a little bit more available, a little bit more conscious, a little bit more available to reach out. Yeah, I, I see people posting in uh, Facebook groups and stuff about, you know, are there any real meetings happening right now? And, and it's like, well, you know, you mean physical meetings, because what you just described is a real meeting. And its purpose is so that the newcomers can find us and connect with us and the conversations, the magic actually happens outside of the meetings. And that's exactly what you described of hang, having a conversation with this guy after the meeting. You know, we do that in physical meetings, but we do that in virtual meetings too. Totally. And sometimes it takes a little bit of an extra step virtually because, um, you know, I had a sponsor early on this. He said at meetings, after every meeting, you thank the chair, you thank the speaker, and you congratulate and give your number to the newcomer. He said, that is what you do after a meeting. And I'm like, okay. So it's literally ingrained in my head. I thank the chair. I thank a speaker if there is one. And I reach out to the person with the least time or the person that took the coin. And I, I don't always give them my number, but I at least reach out and say, congrats. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Um, and it's tough to do that virtually, you know, but I think it's on us to make that extra effort to be there. And I mean, I, I hate to say so, sounds self-serving, but it really does do more for me than it does for them. Well, I mean, we, we are not rendered white as snow. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, 
I never heard that put, thank the chair, thank the speak, speaker, and greet the newcomer. I've never heard it just stated out right, right like that, that that's what you do after a meeting. But, I, you know, that's what I do mm-hmm. instinctively. Um, so it is important. Adjusting to virtual meetings has been quite a paradigm shift for me because I actually was felt that the, that they were not uh, as good as real meetings, face-to-face meetings. And I didn't think sponsorship would be something that could be possible via electronically somehow or other or FaceTime or, or Zoom. I didn't even know what Zoom was before the <laughs> virus hit. But, but then I started a meeting and I, I was wrong. They're real meetings. They're, it is slightly different, but there is that personal connection that you're talking about, Sam. It exists. And look at this. We're meeting here. Mm-hmm. We're in... North Carolina, and where are you? I'm in Michigan. So, I mean, look, we're having a conversation. This is a real conversation. This isn't a virtual conversation. And, you know, I got to throw out there that for me, you know, there is notably a difference between a physical meeting and a a, a digital meeting, a a virtual meeting. Absolutely. I find myself gravitating to smaller virtual meetings. You know, in physical meetings, I'm cool with uh, you know small meetings as well as as large meetings, um, but when it comes to virtual rooms, I really prefer a, a a group of twenty or less people, twenty or fewer, uh, because and and quite frankly, the ones that I have enjoyed the most have been less than ten, yeah. uh, and, and it just allows for a a more for me to feel more connected. It's easy to disconnect from a virtual meeting. It's easy because yeah. all of a sudden, if, if you don't, if, if I'm not engaged and I start sitting back and then I start moving back to the back of the room, if I'm not leaning forward into the meeting, then it becomes a video and, you know, you don't have to pay attention to it. You can start playing. Words. That's true. We literally have to lean in. Yeah. <laughs> that connection. <laughs> yeah. Lean in, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl Sandberg, or whoever that was. Um, and I think that connection is so critical because one of the things I always share about is like my my deepest time in my addiction was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol, but it was also a lot of isolation, loneliness, and disconnection. And so to me, the opposite of that isolation, loneliness, and disconnection is connection. And whether it's through texts, leaning into a Zoom meeting, FaceTime, calls, reaching out to newcomers. Like, I absolutely need that connection now more than ever, so. Oh, Brad, you just totally brought a memory up from uh, the great American WIPA <laughs> when you were calling us your rats. <laughs> I do, I love Rat Park. Okay, just, <laughs> what is a great American WIPA? <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead, Brad. Sure, so WIPA is young people in AA. I've been pretty active in WIPA. Uh, mostly in Michigan. Uh, I sort of grew up in AA on, C- well, in 12 sub programs on CMA first in Los Angeles. And then when I moved back to Michigan, my first year sober, I got really connected to young people in AA. And it is like, oh, I don't know if I can say this. It's like the tweakers of AA. Oh, they're totally the tweakers of AA. <laughs> Not to offend anyone, but it's like these wild, rowdy, energetic, you know, young people that like chant and jump on chairs and have dances. And it's everything that you'd imagine from a bunch of young, young folks, young at heart, all ages welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so anyway, I, I stayed connected with them over the years. And I was the main speaker a couple of years back at the Michigan Convention of Young People in AA. And I, I talk a lot about Rat Park, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with the rat analogy for addiction. No. <laughs> I don't think Don's uh, familiar with it. Oh, okay. So there's scientists that explain this far better than I do. But basically, the, the researcher in the 70s, I can't remember his name, but he did an experiment called Rat Park. And it talked about how we understand addiction, which is basically like drugs and alcohol or no drugs, which one are you going to choose? And when we first started understanding addiction, we had a rat in a cage that was choosing between those two, and they would get addicted and they would die. But what happened was, he actually decided to create this thing called Rat Park and do two different experiments. One was a rat in a cage alone by itself, and the rat had alcohol, drugs, or food. The other one was a rat that was in Rat Park and had the same two choices, but Rat Park had other rats to play with. 
It had companion rats. It had a ball to play with. It had rats to have sex with, rats to bond with, whatever. It was Rat Park. And what happened was the rat that was alone, isolated in a cage, would choose like food, alcohol, drugs, food, alcohol, drugs, alcohol, drugs, die. And it would die. And the rat that was in Rat Park would choose food, alcohol, drugs, food, 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 and live. So he basically figured out that a huge part of overcoming any type of addiction or compulsion or anything like that is surrounding yourself with these bonds and connection. And basically the core message is the opposite of addiction is not just recovery. The opposite of active addiction and alcoholism is actually connection. The owl is getting excited at all these rats because <laughs> this, this is where they are. It's like rat park. We've hit the jackpot over here with AA. Oh my God. So you guys are my rats. We are your rats. And, uh, and the Great American Waipa was a camping event that was in the North Carolina mountains where Brad and I got to hang out more than we had in a long time. Was that last year or the year before? That was last year. Oh yeah, that one in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, that was really fabulous. I just, I had forgotten about that for a minute. But again, like YPAW kind of has the similar energy everywhere. Um, and that was a camping trip. It was outside. There were cabins, there was running water, thank goodness, because Brad does not do. Mm -mm. I don't do <laughs> Glamping, not camping, right? Yeah, I actually went to a Young People in AA actual camping in Northern Michigan, and I didn't know what to plan for. So of course I'm going with like my straight young AA buddies and everything. And they've got like backpacks and I brought my carry-on luggage. And so we're driving down this road and I'm like tweeting about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going camping. And then my cell phone signal stops, Northern Michigan, middle of the woods, nowhere. I'm like, oh man, what are we in for? The road turns to dirt road. And then we get to the end of the dirt road and they're like, okay, now we're gonna hike to the campsite. <laughs> hike to the campsite? Are you kidding How'd you, how'd you roll aboard do? It was terrible. So I'm carrying my luggage in front of me, like with my arms under it. And granted, my luggage has, it has a hairdryer, has face moisturizer, has hair product. I had no idea. And we like, you, need, you need some people. Oh my gosh, it was to carry awful. your stuff. <laughs> it was awful. And then we had to bathe in a river. The river was so cold. I almost lost my mind. <laughs> but it was a great experience. The campfires and the fellowship and the connection to my rats was good. The camping, mm -mm, not so much. Well, I'm glad you had your other rats there. One of the first times that I went camping with some friends to overnight to, uh, to a mountain, I went and did not think about alcohol. And <laughs> it started getting dark and I was going, what the fuck am I gonna do? I was like, I don't have any alcohol. And I had no idea that this was so important. And luckily there was a guy who had a bottle of liquor who shared it with me. And that never happened to me again. That was when I discovered, now I look back on it, that's the first time that I realized I could not be without alcohol was on that camping trip. It had never happened to me before. Now, and did he really share that with you or did you knock him over the head and take it all? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Luckily, he shared it with me, but uh, that was a shock. So, Brad, when you said that you started, you went to CMA first and then went to AA. Yes. What's so, tell, tell me about how you came to a place that you decided that you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. How did you, you were talking about surrender. How did you get to that place? Yeah, well, my first foray into recovery came um, years ago when I had moved from Michigan to Los Angeles, California. And my, my drinking and using had sort of accelerated. Um, I always kind of had this sense of like, not fitting, not being just right. And then also like being gay, just feeling a little bit different. It really fueled my alcoholism and my using. And so that like fast forwarded alcohol plus uh, Coke, you can drink more alcohol plus meth, you can stay up for days on end. So that really got me to a place where I was, you know, completely isolating myself from people around. I mean, I could talk about the jobs and lost cars and, you know, all that type of stuff, but it was really like the isolation and the loneliness that got me to say, do I want to live or do I want to die? So that 
happened and it's it a, it an emotional crisis yes yeah, certainly an emotional rock bottom um like i used to say i used to say like my car has become unmanageable because i couldn't afford to repair my brakes on my car and so i'd stop with the parking brake and all this weird stuff and then i was in hollywood and i got the roof cut into the top of my convertible and there was rain in it and there's mold all over the place and it was just me not caring about anything except for drugs and alcohol and losing jobs. I mean, I lost a job with a bunch of crystal meth addicts that we were all doing crystal meth all day. And I couldn't hold it down because they were like, you're, you're all over the place. You can't keep up with us. And I'm like, okay. Um, we made a lot of lists and never got anything done. So there were a lot of bad, but that was the outside stuff, right? Like the jobs, the look, the dry skin, losing weight. I was down to like 135 at the time. That's all outside stuff. It was the inside stuff. Um, that really, really was a wake up call. And basically being disconnected from my entire family, everyone I loved and cared about, um, even some of my, yeah, some of my closest friends, like they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. It was that isolation loneliness that made me say, I have to connect and I have to figure some stuff out. So how did you, how did you connect? So that's when I started dabbling in 12 step meetings and I, I came to CMA, Crystal Meth Anonymous, and I thought my, I thought my drug of choice, crystal meth and alcohol, was just an independent problem. I tried to silo that, right? And so, like, I talk about substances. I know the big book talks about substances, so I hope we're okay with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I really thought that was the crux of the problem because, as my first sponsor described to me, he believes the drugs hit fast forward on my unmanageability. Hmm because I had experienced like unmanageability light. Like I drank my way through college six nights a week. I got pulled over and failed breathalyzers and I talked my way out of them. I mean, there's some privilege right there. But anyway, um, and then when I started using Coke and crystal meth along with alcohol, it just fast forwarded everything. And it was like that. An accelerant. An accelerant, yeah. It was like fueling the flames. So how did you uh, decide that Crystal Meth Anonymous attractive and then you decided that you would go to AA? Yeah, so the fascinating thing was I was out in um, California going to the CMA meetings and I really thought I could still drink and drink reasonably and drink in like a lady. Yeah, Wait a minute. Did you quit meth and then so you because you said you thought if you could focus on that, that that would be the answer and then the alcohol continued yeah. so i quit the meth first i, I kind of quit everything and maybe i would drink sometimes but i i was like the meth is what's causing the problem for sure and i got to cma and cma was like we you know we don't use all drugs including alcohol and i was like well this is messed up yeah. um so i actually went to the guru it was like the bill w of cma right his name was bill c bill coffee he's passed away now mm -hmm. and i i mean talk about egomaniac with an inferiority complex i was like i am going to speak with the founder of Crystal Meth Anonymous about this problem that I have. I'm like, Karen, can I speak with the manager of this program? <laughs> if Bill W, I would be like going to Ohio being like, Bill, listen, I don't know about this whole acceptance thing because da -da -da -da. I'm like, I'm terrible. I'm the Karen of 12 step programs. <laughs> so I go, my can I speak to a manager haircut to Bill C and I say, listen, all my unmanageability is from Crystal Meth. Crystal meth made me lose this, this, and this. Alcohol, mm, I don't really know. Why can I not drink? Like, why is it not okay for me to drink? And he said, he listened to my whole spiel, and he just looked at me and he said, well, Brad, can you not drink today? I said, yes. And he said, why don't you try doing that and come back tomorrow? <laughs> right. So that was his very simple mic drop that then expanded my mind to, and then of course, like I had relapses after that, where I was like, I'm quote, just going to drink. When I left rehab in Los Angeles, I went to the bar to have two Coronas. That's all I wanted was two Coronas. And I ended up back at a bathhouse sex club 12 hours later, high on meth and confused. I mean, literally confused at how I got there. Like I went from being in rehab to being using in a bathhouse within 24 hours. Is yeah, you can't have just one. Yeah, it's like that. And then, and then all this stuff that I heard, like, oh, 
you know, powerlessness. Like you were talking about the mental obsession when you were camping and everything of thinking about it, wanting to get and use more. I was like, oh man, is this an example of powerlessness? Is this unmanageability? Like I, I physically cannot stop using this substance. Is this powerless? Is this unmanageable? And so that, like just having a little bit of 12 step stuff in my head, just, I knew, I knew what was going on. I knew I was powerless. I knew I was unmanageable. It's that uh, that comment in in some of our literature about a uh, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer, totally. that that type of thing had totally kicked in. You know, it's uh, the other thing too that I heard though is the unpredictability. You know, so I'm powerless over this. I can't not use it, and I can't predict what the outcome is going to be when I do use it. I might be okay this time. I might stop. I might, you know, not wind up doing all the things that that I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, or I might wind up doing all kinds of things that I wouldn't normally do or don't want to do and, uh, and pay heavy consequences for them. Yeah. And also that I feel like the snowball effect of the isolation and the loneliness just kind of like, cause it's like, I, I feel isolated, different, lonely. So I use crystal meth or alcohol or whatever to fill that void. And then it makes me end up feeling more isolated and disconnected and lonely. So I use more of it and it just fuels this really negative snowball. And it's like, that's how I really think that's how people die of addiction to alcoholism is that disconnection. The Rat Park example too, it talks about the prison system in America, which is a whole, that's a whole nother podcast. But when you isolate people and separate them, it is challenging. It, I don't know that it solves anything. And it compares it to, this is way out there. I'm sorry, I'm going there. But there are some villages in Africa where when you do something wrong, like you commit a heinous act, you are surrounded by the tribe and you are surrounded by people and you are like given something to lift you up and make you feel more connected because you know that dis- the disconnection from addiction from wh- wherever it comes from that dis- disconnection and isolation is challenging you know i have heard what you were describing there about uh, some african villages mm-hmm. yet completely had forgotten about that and when you mentioned some african villages uh, and someone does a heinous act, my first thought was that they are expelled from the village and, 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 and they, were, they go out on their own and they, and they die. Yeah. Um, and how telling is it that that's how I am still wired, that that's how you uh, treat people who screw up? Right. Um, whether, it, and, and it's something, so, you know, we were supposed to have a guest on uh, the last uh, recording of The Owl that, was a no-show. And this was the second time that this guest was a no-show. The first time was a year and a half ago. And the no-show was because of a relapse. This no-show was also because of a relapse. And this person reached out to me this week and apologized uh, and said, you know, I I relapsed again. And one of the things that I'm so grateful that I've learned in these rooms is that we do not shoot our wounded. Mm-hmm. We do surround them. We do lift them. We hold them. We take care of them. It doesn't mean that we coddle them. It doesn't mean that we excuse what they've done or make, make it small. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't excommunicate them. No, we okay. surround them with love. And yeah. that's what I felt when I came to AA. And it was like, what is up with these people? Because I felt like we had a whole meeting on uh, feeling like a turd the other day. (laughs) 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 Which was, it's like absolutely everybody that in that, in that meeting said when they came in, they felt like a, a walking turd. And Yet all these shiny, happy people was what they were because I mean, I was just like, "Well, what's up with these people in AA? They're all so happy and generous and laughing and like you know, talk, talk about shame and everybody starts laughing. Oh, shame! <laughs> people in AA will talk about anything, you know. Yeah, and, uh, I just could not figure it out but i but it was attractive and what was happening was they were surrounding me with love and it i felt that isolation that you described 
it was so much a part of my psyche that, you know, I thought I was screwed up and uh, about, uh, you know, I thought I needed some serious therapy and there was a lot of stuff that this was the way that the world was. And at about two weeks of not drinking, it began, this sense of impending doom began to lift. And someone said, you realize alcohol is a depressant. You were describing that, Brad. No, actually, I drank to make myself feel better. But it's now leaving your system. And that's what's happening. This is, And I had no idea that this sense of impending doom, that a major part of it was the stuff I was putting in my body to fight that. <laughs> I was doing it to myself. Uh, yeah, and the solution before this program existed was put you in a sanitarium, isolate uh -huh. lock you. Like, I'm so grateful that we have this program that even if it, you know, whether it takes us upstairs to yell at us a little bit or <laughs> we talked about, I don't know if that was before we started, but I'm just grateful that we have this program that surrounds us with love and connects us. Share with us, um, if you will, a pivotal thing where when you first came into the program, where you're like going, oh, this is your thinking change. This is totally different what they're saying here. And I, oh, I'm starting to see how this could work. There were a lot of little aha moments in early recovery. And one of them, and I'm smiling because this is such a stupid story. I can't even tell it, but it was the Golden Girls. Yes. So non-AA approved literature, by the way, but Golden Girls was very critical to my recovery. Um, I was in rehab and I had felt so dejected, isolated, lonely. I had a lot of internalized homophobia, right? And so the way I can describe that, I think gay queer folks that might listen to this might get it, right? It's like, oh, I was afraid of myself and who I was. But what I find a lot of straight folks say, oh, I also didn't feel comfortable with myself and I felt fear and shame about who I am, period. Let you af Afraid to let anybody know your authentic self. Exactly. That fear of if I show who I really am, no one's going to love me. No one's going to mm -hmm. like me. And so when I was in rehab, I, I thought I was like, oh, I'm, I'm straight, but I don't know. And all these, these old gay guys were like, oh, queen, you just need to, you just need to figure it out. And you know, we're here for you. We're here for you. And they would always watch Golden Girls. And I was like, why are you so obsessed with Golden Girls? This guy, Daryl in particular, who's an actor. And uh, he said, we have to watch Golden Girls. You guys, it's Golden Girls night. And he, they described to me this concept of chosen family, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, okay, if you're rejected, whatever, you're rejected from a community of faith, from your parents, from your siblings, from whatever, organizations, institutions, you feel rejected, you have the ability to choose your family. And they were like, look at Blanche, look at Rose, look at the Golden Girls, they are a chosen family. They chose to live together and they chose to be connected and to make this family unit. And so I started looking at, my queer and gay friends as a chosen family. I looked at the people in rehab with me as a chosen family. And then I still, I look at my uh, friends in recovery and my meetings, my home groups, my sponsor, my sponsees. I always look at that as chosen family to stay connected with them. Oh, so Golden Girls. <laughs> that's great. I am so glad you got to tell that. Yeah, am I your gayest host or your gayest guest yet? <laughs> I'm the gayest host we've had, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I confess I've never seen Golden Girls, so I don't know what you're talking about. What? <laughs> what in straight America are you talking about? I've never, I don't know, is it TV? Yes, Golden Girls is TV. Don, your assignment after this is to watch an episode of the Golden Girls. Yeah, very well. <laughs> Sam, which I'm going to hold you to that, Don. Which you're going to be quizzed on this later. <laughs> what was that, Brad? Which one is he? Is he like a, a Dorothy or a Rose? Or I would suspect Dorothy. Yeah, that's what I'm Dorothy. Getting, I'm getting Dorothy vibes. <laughs> <laughs> that'll give that'll give me uh, some homework to do and figure out whether I'm, I like this Dorothy comparison or not. And Don, I am definitely Blanche. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so was Brad. <laughs> I am a Blanche Rose, thank you very much. <laughs> Brad's face is just a one of horror. I'm optimistic. <laughs> Turkey. And, and, and Rose is played by Betty White. Yeah. 
yeah, it's Betty White. Oh, 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 oh. I now think, you're starting to get a clue, aren't you? Yeah, I remember that being on. Buddy. Down such a rat trail here. <laughs> really? Well, we are a rat family. Scatter rats, here comes the owl. <laughs> It's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, Sonny. Yeah, Sonny. You can post a question for us at boiledowlaa.org. We have a question that uh, I, I love how this works out. Once again, the, the question is so apropos to, to what we've been discussing at some points in, in our conversation. So maybe that just simply says that our conversations just go everywhere or maybe there's something else involved. But Shane in New Mexico asks, how can I tell if I'm really an alcoholic? Ooh, yeah, well, I was thinking about this. This is what I was uh, asking Brad about earlier uh, because in Zoom meeting that we had, we had somebody new in and she was wondering like, what makes a real alcoholic? And we touched on that. It's like the real question is, well, if you think you might be an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic because someone who is not an alcoholic would never question it because they just simply would not drink too much. They just simply wouldn't do it. If it's a bit of a problem, well, then, um, you know, like if I, if I got drunk and was sick the next day, then a normal person would go, that made me sick. But I am an alcoholic. And I think, hmm, that was fun. <laughs> I want to make myself sick again tonight. <laughs> so I do it again tonight. What it is, is that alcohol was so attractive so transforming a drink was the answer to the meaning of life for me when i first drank it i mean drinking was so good that i wanted to do it every day and it worked and if it continued to work the way that it worked at the beginning i'd still be drinking every day but it quit working because the more i drank the more i needed to drink and, and what I found was that I couldn't not drink. And that's what an alcoholic, alcoholic is, is someone who can't not drink. And I couldn't do it. And I would fight. I spent the last two years of my um, drinking career trying to control it. And I could not control it. And I learned in AA early on that, Don, you know that if you're thinking about not drinking, you're still thinking about drinking. And I would be all day long thinking about how I'm not gonna drink today. <laughs> I mean, I, it was always at the top of my mind. It was always there. It controlled my life. I see that once I got into AA, I could look back and see how I made decisions based on alcohol. For example, I decided, never to go on a hiking trip again <laughs> that if i didn't have alcohol there that's an alcoholic because someone who's not an alcoholic would not have to think about that what about you brad how would you answer that question well i think it's a great question i think for me it just comes down to powerlessness and not i will clarify that with the first step i am powerless over alcohol my life has become unmanageable Everyone has unmanageability that is an alcoholic, but it looks very, very different for a lot of people. What I think we share that's the same is the powerlessness. And I think there's two parts of that powerlessness. There's a physical component, physical compulsion, and then there's a second part, which is the mental obsession. And the mental obsession can be very sneaky. It can be lots of different ways. It can be being on a camping trip and feeling like I've never been here without alcohol. For me, the mental obsession was planning my life around getting and using more. Um, so like when I first graduated from college, I was making $400 a week. And I remember doing my finances for the week and saying, do I have enough money first to get drunk at the bar for the next six nights, second for rent, third for food, fourth for car and fifth for everything else. Cause I remember doing the math. It was like, 
two drinks a night at the Abbey, $10 a piece, 120, and then planning the rest of my life from there. Um, that's mental obsession, right? And then the physical compulsion is what happens when I take the first drink or take the first drug and I cannot control or stop the results. So it's the, I'm going to go to the bar and have a couple of drinks and I'm blacking out drunk four hours later. It's the, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to shoot up. I won't use this substance during the week. You know, if it affects my job, my kids, whatever, I won't do it. It's that physical compulsion where once I start using alcohol or substances, I cannot stop and I cannot predict the results. That's I like great. that breaking it up into two parts. Uh, the, it's the mental obsession and the, then once I've used, it's the physical addiction. Right. And I had to write about that a lot too. Like I had to write it out, physical, physical compulsion, mental obsession, just write examples of that. Cause it took me a while to really figure that out. Yeah, one of the things that I had to get when I um, finally was getting this uh, was that a, a very practical look at how I'm powerless over alcohol. And it was that as soon as I ingest it, as soon as I swallow alcohol, I'm absolutely powerless over it because I can't get it out of my system. As, as soon as it's in me, I can't do anything about it was a thing that I, I got that helped me start accepting the powerlessness. Um, the thing though uh, that, that occurred to me while, while you were sharing, Brad, was lowering my standards to meet my alcohol uh, mm -hmm. use. Uh, I'll never do this. And then when I do that, well, I'll never do this. Well, and, and just keep it continuing to lower the bar of what I won't do. And then the other thing was that, you know, for me, alcohol, it, God, there's so much to how, how can I tell if I'm really an alcoholic? I had this mindset that anything worth doing is, is worth doing drunk or high. Anything I'm experiencing is going to be enhanced by being drunk or high or made better. Uh, if, if it's negative shit that I'm experiencing, then getting drunk or high is going to make it more tolerable. If I'm experiencing stuff that I really like, then being drunk or high is going to make that even better. Um, how could you not want to go through life drunk or high? And then throw on top of it the, uh, that unpredictability of that when I do put it in, I don't, in my body, I don't know where it's going to stop. Don, you mentioned that uh, you would get drunk and, and get sick. And then you know, the next day, you'd be like, ooh, that was great. I'm going to do that again. For me, my hangovers got for, for like the last 10 years of my drinking were just horrible. But that's the price you pay for this alcohol. Alcohol is worth it. I am absolutely miserable. I mean, there, I, would, I would call in sick to work uh, and, and because my hangovers were so bad. Yet, by that afternoon, that hangover was not so bad as to prevent me from drinking again, because in my head, that's just the price for drinking, and drinking's worth it. I remember sitting in, a, uh, in my first home group meeting, and a, uh, a woman was uh, asking something, was, was challenging whether or not she was an alcoholic, and... Uh, Oh my God, little, little Mr. Sam with his, his big book knowledge at the time uh, pulled out that, uh, that line out of the big book about going to the nearest bar room or barroom uh, and try controlled drinking. And I, I quoted that uh, in a share to her. I cross-talked, I shared at her. Um, about a year later, she came back in and she was so pissed off at me because I had suggested that she go do that, so she did it. And she found out that she was an alcoholic. You know, there are suggestions in the literature of how you can find out if you're an alcoholic. That is what uh, the big book says, yeah. Yeah. Not your fault, Sam. She needed to learn that lesson. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm totally not owning that. I'm, I'm wearing that as a badge, man. That's, that's a big book thumping badge. <laughs> Great. Sam, you started out as a crusty old timer. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow, and, why don't you just go out and try drinking? 
Sam had 30 days. He was beating people over the head with a big book. That's right. And now I'm a wipa. Now I'm young people. <laughs> You're Benjamin Button of 12 step. There you go. I love that. <laughs> Woo! Benjamin Button, he's little. He's <laughs> out getting excited with this conversation. Brad, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. Thank you so much. You guys have been a hoot. <laughs> I will hope you would join us again. <laughs> well, who wouldn't? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Brad, when did you get sober? Oh, five. Do we have that? Was that part of the podcast? Oh, no. You never asked him anything about what got him sober or how, you know. <laughs> Sorry, did I go off on too many tangents? Oh, not honey, no. no. Okay. This it's is great. <laughs> That's it. Our <laughs> conversations go everywhere. I loved the sound effect. And I think I even said something to Sam. I'm like, where did you guys find that owl? Sound effect. I said, where, did you buy it? Did you have to like pay $2.99 for it? He said, oh, no, that's Don. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> it's so much fun to have someone who's listened to the show. We had one guest who was out of town from here. Oh, yeah. And she was sitting across the table, and I did, and her face just lit up. <laughs> That's how you're doing it. <laughs> I'm here. They don't do this at our meetings. <laughs> I think every meeting needs a mascot. I think so too. I like rats too. Yeah, the, I, I really do recommend watching the rat park videos because the scientists that, there's the scientists that did the research and then there's like a TED talk and there's an explainer video. They're all good, just watch any one of them. Mm -hmm. And it's the whole like rat park experiment. I, I also love this campaign, this, you know, help fund the boiled owl because I think you could have a lot of fun with the owl references, like help us expand our wingspan or something like that. There are so many fun things you can do with the owl. Get, we'll wait to get our talons in you. Yeah. <laughs> or into help your us, pocketbook, at least. Help us sink our talons into your recovery. I don't know. <laughs> 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 like it's, the old -timers. it's not attractive, is it? <laughs>